0: Hi, I'm Michaela McGuire-Scalaro, and you're listening to City Road. The 2023 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fascinating panel discussions that confront the many contested views on our cities and urban regions. In this episode, Dr. Robert Stokes, former Minister for Planning, Public Spaces and Cities, will reflect on how wicked assumptions shape contemporary cities and define their futures in front of a panel. Following Dr Stokes, we hear the voices of Dylan Combermeri, Principal Government Architect, Davina Rooney, the CEO of the Green Building Council of Australia, and Michelle Kramer, Future Communities Leader at GHD, as they discuss whether these assumptions can be contested and overcome. I'll let our chairperson, Professor Nicole Garin, start us off.
1: But before we begin tonight's events I'd actually like to hand over to Rowena Welsh Jarrett to give the welcome to country and just noting that Rowena is a committee member of the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Advisory Committee for the New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment. She's the Director of Cultural Heritage at the Biller Group and, and she's also Senior Heritage Officer with the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. Thank you so much Rowena.
2: Thank you, Nicole, for that lovely introduction. It's always very humbling hearing how much I do. (laughs) Often leaves me wondering how I also have time to raise my four children. (laughs) So, Nugambi, which is hello and welcome in my Dharawu language. My name is Rowena welsh Jarrett, as I was introduced, and I'm conducting the Welcome to Country for you all today. I would like to begin this cultural process by acknowledging our elders past, our elders present, the elders who come before us, the elders who role-modelled self-determination, cultural strength and pride. Acknowledge our ancestors and also extend a warm acknowledgement to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people present here tonight. I was born on Gadigal land and I am a descendant of multiple Sydney coastal clan groups. My maternal grandmother is a Timbri and like many other coastal Sydney families, I come from an unbroken line of kuris born here in Sydney, pre-Cook. Traditionally, my people moved about following fishing seasons in this very harbour, its surrounding rivers, and travelling as far south as Wreck Bay, never taking more than we needed from our lands and our waterways. Our cultural and environmental knowledge and innovation has shaped and informed many primary industries here in this city. My people still continue to live on country, out at La Perouse, here in Redfern and surrounding areas. We continue to work in various sectors and roles, caring for our traditional lands and waterways and proudly continuing to practise our culture. Much like today, traditionally many nations gathered around the coastal Sydney area because of its great significance and abundance of natural resources, also also to ensure that cultural knowledge, practices and laws were passed on, the very laws and customs of this land. Often moving around amongst our Sydney people and surrounding areas we would follow customs such as being welcomed onto country by neighbouring nations or nations whose country we would pass through for reasons such as burial, marriage, trade. This traditional custom was carried out to acknowledge the ancestors, the people of the land past and present, acknowledge their customs and their laws, and to respectfully adhere to those customs and those laws whilst on country. In turn, this ensured your safe passage through country. I would also like to take this opportunity for you all, participating in the continuation of our culture, the oldest living culture in this world, and the culture of these lands in the spirit of true reconciliation. So it is with these experiences, the knowledge passed down to me and the bloodlines within me that I welcome you to this country, land of the Gadigal clan, Gadigal Nura. This land is, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you and enjoy.
1: Thank you so much, Rowena. That was a really moving welcome to country and such an important reminder. And with that, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you here this evening to this official uh, kickoff event to the Festival of Urbanism Sydney, and I say Sydney because we're now a, a national event. So tonight's official launch event with the Dennis Winston Memorial uh, Lecture to be delivered by uh, Dr Rob Stokes and followed by a panel of thought leaders is the perfect way to kick off our Festival of Urbanism in Sydney. In keeping with the theme of contested urbanism this year, it's very fitting, I think, that the keynote address is being delivered by Rob Stokes, who um, I dare say is someone who has found himself at the centre of some of the greatest uh, contests over planning and development in New South Wales, Um, certainly the ones that I know about, there may be many others as well. I'm going to hand over in a moment to our Acting Dean of Architecture, Design and Planning to introduce uh, Rob, though I'm sure to you here tonight, he needs no introduction. And tonight's insiders are Dylan Combermery, who is the Principal Architect at Government Architect New South Wales. He's got over 25 years of experience in architectural practice. He's taught and lectured globally on the hidden value of Indigenous knowledge and how it can influence better outcomes for the built environment. Our second insider is, of course, Davina Rooney, who's the CEO of... Green of the Green Building Council of Australia. And, of course, Davina is a, a very a senior property professional who's had a broad range of sustainability experience from environmental projects as well as through her work for non-profit boards and community development work overseas. And lastly, but certainly not least, Michelle Kramer, Future Communities Leader Australia at GHG. Michelle is an architect, urban designer, author, uh, planner, urban development leader with experience across the public and private sectors. She's worked on Barangaroo and Sydney Olympic Park for the 2000 Olympics, amongst other significant projects. But now let me introduce, uh, uh, let me invite, I should say, Dr. Adrian Keane to introduce the Dennis Winston Memorial Lecture and our keynote speaker, Rob Stokes. Uh, Good
3: evening, everybody. I too would like to acknowledge that I'm on land, and I pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and to thank Rowena for that very generous um, welcome. That was really terrific. Ah, contest, well. I'd like to start with saying that, you know, planning laws sometimes bring around good things. We'll start with that because in 1945, the New South Wales government brought out a whole raft of these planning laws which ne- needed, we needed more planners. And the response to that was that the University of Sydney decided it should get it act together and actually put together um, a postgraduate degree in planning. So as that happened, one of the things that Um, bring us together tonight was this brought about Dennis Winston coming to Sydney and becoming the first chair of planning um, at the University. So he was born in Liverpool in 1908 and trained as an architect um, in Britain before he went to Harvard and studied city and landscape planning. So he was another person who um, driven by um, intellect and the understanding of how broad uh, built environment learning and teaching could be. So then he worked um, as a senior planner in different roles across the UK before he came and was the foundational chair in town and country planning in 1949 and which we note that actually that was the first course of professional planning in in the country. Thank you, Dennis. So he was all about breaking down divisions between town and gown and he was influential advising uh, government, and I think that is a role that uh, planning academics, university academics still do across the, across the country, particularly out of, um, out of our school. He was an advocate of good civic design and of regional decentralisation and worked on several landmark projects, including the design of Adam Innaby and Ginderbine for the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Authority, serving on technical advisory panel for the construction of the Sydney Opera House and even the National Capital Planning Committee for Canberra. He was a busy, influential guy. So under his leadership the Masters in Town and Country Planning and then a PhD qualification was introduced at the university. So his legacy was across planning scholarship and practice in New South Wales and that is what is being recognised by the memorial lecture. So it's particularly fitting then um, that the first of these memorial lectures is being uh, delivered by another person who's also been extremely important influence on urban and regional planning in New South Wales and who also epitomised the role of scholarly practitioner. There should be more of them I think that made Professor Winston so influential. Rob Stokes is an urbanist and recognised thought leader on sustainable urban development. He's a member of the Federal Government's Urban Policy Forum and Chair of Faith Housing. He served as Australia's first ever Minister for Active Transport with the New South Wales Government and also served as Minister for Planning, Public Spaces, Cities, Infrastructure, Transport, Education, Environment and Heritage in a political career spanning more than 15 years. So I would like all of you to join me to invite Rob to the lectern. Thank you
4: very much. Thank you for that very uh, gracious uh, welcome. I want to start my comments this evening too with some. Acknowledgements, Uh, the first and most important is to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to extend those respects to Aboriginal people who are here with us. Secondly, I wanted to acknowledge Professor Gurren uh, for the work she and her team have done uh, in explaining planning to the public. Uh, demystifying the practice of planning and also supporting uh, the the idea that planning is all about increasing capacity for people to design the future for the cities that they would like to see, so the democratic aspects of planning. So I wanted to acknowledge Nicole and her team uh, and the entire faculty for the hard work that they've put into this festival uh, but also into planning education more broadly. Uh, Thirdly, I wanted to thank those who had provided some direct inspiration into what uh, I have to say this evening. Uh, uh, That's Sarah Stace, Mark Lane, Katie Stevenson and Estelle Gretsch. Thank you all. Uh, You're actually much cleverer than me and it's your assumptions upon which this, this speech is based. Exactly 50 years ago, Dennis Winston chose an auspicious year to retire. 1973 was a window into a world transforming a year of conclusions, and a year of commencements. As Dennis bid farewell to his professional life, the Sydney Opera House opened to the public. An architectural marvel, its shimmering sails became a symbol of hope and artistry, embodying the spirit of new beginnings. But as the grandeur of the Opera House captivated many, the US concluded its prolonged military intervention in Vietnam. The images of returning soldiers were a powerful reminder of the costs of conflict, marking an end to a chapter that had deeply divided society. In Europe, a significant beginning was taking shape. The UK, in its quest for economic prosperity and shared identity, joined the European economic community as it then was, seeding debates and decisions that would echo for decades. The same year, the conclusion of the Bretton Woods Consensus, which had steered global currency relations for almost three decades, signalled a shifting economic paradigm. The gold standard was abandoned, ushering in an era of floating exchange rates and changing economic dynamics. OPEC's oil embargo sent global economies into a tailspin, fuel shortages. Soaring prices and serpentine queues at petrol stations symbolised the West's susceptibility to geopolitical tensions in the Middle East. Yet economic vulnerability and urban decay breathed life into urban expressions, with the rhythms and beats of hip hop emerging from the heart of New York in August 1973. For Dennis, his retirement was more than just a personal transition. It was an opportunity to witness the world at a crossroads, with events from 1973 shaping global trajectories for years to come. In the interplay of endings and beginnings, highs and lows, Dennis's retirement stood out as a testament to a world undergoing profound change. 1973 wasn't just a year that echoed with political tremors and economic shifts. It was a year that produced revolutionary insights into the realm of urban planning. The threads of economic and political change were woven into an academic tapestry that was rich, diverse, and utterly transformative. 1973 saw the release of David Harvey's seminal work, Social Justice and the City. Reflecting on the contemporary crises in capitalism, Harvey observed the conventional paradigms of urban planning as superficial, overlooking the intricate economic forces that sculpt the contours of our cities. He asserted that social injustices are produced and reproduced through spatial arrangements, and he rejected the orthodoxy that technocratic and managerialist approaches could effectively solve urban problems. Harvey was not alone in this intellectual revolt. Enter John Friedman with his groundbreaking, a transactive style of planning. Rejecting the top-down, almost autocratic models that had long dominated the field, Friedman championed a more inclusive, adaptive approach. He envisaged planners not as overlords, but as partners, engaged in a symbiotic relationship with communities, bound together by mutual respect and co-learning. Again, in 1973, another influential paper was published by Alan Grabeau and Alan Heskin, who voiced concerns akin to Harvey and Friedman They criticised the cold, detached, technocratic planning which relied on quantitative methodologies at the expense of qualitative insights, local knowledge and participatory processes. Their clarion call was clear – planning ought to be a beacon of social justice, aware of power dynamics and advocating for the unheard. Not to be outdone, Andreas Faludi also released his seminal work on planning theory in 1973. Faludi challenged the prevailing orthodoxy of rational or blueprint planning, uh, arguing that our world, in all its beautiful complexity, couldn't be planned through a scientific approach. He saw planning as an art as much as a science, a dynamic interplay of negotiation, dialogue, and an acknowledgement of the subjectivity we we all bring to the table. Again in 1973, C.S. Buzz Hollings introduced his concept resilience. Whilst conceived in the context of ecological systems, it had profound consequence for understanding the urban crises of the early 1970s. Instead of viewing our cities as entities craving stability, always looking to bounce back to a familiar equilibrium after a setback, resilience thinking urged us to see cities as dynamic, adaptive organisms with the innate ability to evolve, to change, to grow, even in the face of adversity and of specific importance to my topic this evening, 1973 was also the year that Horst Riddle and Melvin Weber introduced the concept of wicked problems. Think of the challenges that 1973 so vividly threw into the spotlight. According to Riddle and Weber, these challenges, or wicked problems as they styled them, uh, were human-made conundrums. They couldn't be neatly packaged or clearly defined. They didn't offer the luxury of a single solution or the promise of a definitive end. These problems were unique, defying the one size fits all solutions that traditional planning cherished. And to make them even more intriguing, potential solutions to wicked problems may themselves generate further problems, creating a special responsibility for decision makers. Simple examples of wicked problems in the urban context include development on floodplains, congested streets or insufficient pedestrian paths, or lack of schools in areas where children live. Taken collectively, the planning literature from 1973 displays a dramatic, almost revolutionary transition from rational or synoptic planning towards communicative and deliberative planning. It was a seismic shift from cold, calculated rationalism to warm, immersive empiricism, redefining not just how we plan, but how we understand, empathize, and engage with the very spaces we inhabit. No longer would planners be mere architects of space. Uh, They became curators of experience. Half a century has now passed since 1973's groundbreaking insights into urban planning. Yet our cities still grapple with the challenges of the past and new wicked problems arising from recent policies. As Hegel aptly stated, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. (laughs) Why, despite recognizing and understanding these complex issues, do we continue to create them? Why hasn't our past learning prevented future mistakes? The answer is twofold. First. Riddle and Weber's work identified the nature of wicked problems, but didn't investigate the assumptions which informed the decisions that created the problems in the first place. They sought to raise awareness about the ubiquity of wicked problems, to encourage acceptance of the insolubility of wicked problems, and to advocate adaptation as a means of managing wicked problems. But their research looked at consequence, not causation. They used the word wicked not as a moral judgment, but as a metaphor to describe problems that are elusive, intricate, complex and frustrating. They looked forward at how to manage problems, not backwards to the thinking which created them. Yet, behind every wicked problem, there are wicked assumptions. And it's not possible to label an assumption as wicked without some sense of moral judgement. Unlike a problem to which moral value cannot always be ascribed... Assumptions are inherently based on values and beliefs. Wicked assumptions are the seeds by which wicked problems are sown. Take the examples I mentioned earlier. Flooding, for instance. As the American Association of Planning Officials opined, quote, every year the floods get bigger and more expensive. The value of structures and uses on the floodplain has increased. The local community and the nation may be asked to pay for damage that should not have been allowed to occur. Some strong words have been said on the subject of floodplain control in the past. It's our hope that stronger action will take take place in the future. These words are as true today as when they were written 70 years ago in 1953. The contemporary wicked problem of flooding in the Hawkesbury-Nepean Valley, not far to the west of here, is founded on assumptions about risk. Grace Caskins noted that Aboriginal people warned European colonists to avoid settling on the floodplain, but their warnings were ignored. Until recently, the Floodplain Development Manual in New South Wales required council planners to adopt the 1 in 100 year flood level as the standard for development on floodplains, but expressly prohibited the use of more conservative standards to account for maximum probable flood levels. In our coastal regions, this might seem adequate. The probable maximum flood level and the one in 100 fl- year flood level are generally on par, representing similar risk profiles. But if we move inland, particularly to areas like the Lower Hawkesbury, the situation changes drastically. Here, the probable maximum flood can rise to levels 10 meters or more above the assumed the official assumed flood planning level. In other words, Housing subdivisions over the past 15 or so years since the manual was updated uh, in 2005 are designed to withstand a one in 100 year flood. Yet until even more just recent updates to the manual made just recently, any flood event with a probability of just slightly over 1% in any given year could jeopardize thousands of these homes. While the problem caused may not be morally wicked, it is hard to see how the assumption that created it isn't. Other examples of assumptions that have shaped our urban fabric may not seem so morally reprehensible but display the wickedness of ignorance and arrogance. The urban mythology of so-called settler cities like Sydney is hugely problematic with a range of complex social, environmental and economic problems caused by car-dependent sprawl all of which was designed on the basis of assumptions made by professional planners. A series of triune assumptions echoing the triune principles of platonic philosophy underpin the design of our cities. The three magnets drawing together the idealized benefits of town and country toward the paradoxical garden city utopia are managed by, imagined by Ebenezer Howard. Uh, together with the so-called Gedeon trio of work, place, and folk envisaged by Patrick Geddes, inform more than a century of suburban sprawl. The three spatial rings in the concentric planning model promoted by Ernest Burgess, dividing cities into zones with a clear distinction between a central business district, uh, industrial surround and suburban periphery, lie at the heart of the segregated zonal planning system that inhibits organic mixed-use development today. Even within residential districts, Burgess applied a triune categorisation sorting residents according to their social class, reflecting economic segregation that shapes the spatial expression of our cities today. While the assumptions of these planners weren't consciously wicked, they reflected the limited diversity of the white middle-class men who designed cities based on their limited experience and vision. Even Dennis Winston, whose contribution we honor tonight, betrayed himself as a man of his times, complaining in his 1957 book, quote, if ever we are really in a hurry, we have to get out of our car and walk. It is ironic that the ability to get out of our cars and walk is exactly the sort of freedom we want to plan for in our cities today. Failing to review the currency of assumptions is also wicked. Sydney's littered with underutilised or even useless public open spaces such as suburban allotments allocated as pocket parks, uh, irregular shaped offcuts from subdivisions or land surrounding drainage swales. While some of these spaces have been rediscovered as cherished community gardens or, or uh, places of quiet sanctuary, many more are better characterised as handy places to shore sh- shopping trolleys or burned out vehicles. Yet all of these parks were planned. The general open space standard often applied by Australian local government is based on assumptions, standards and hierarchies designed 100 years ago. For example, the universal open space standard adopted from the United Kingdom was based on the assumption in 1928 that for every 1000 people, 500 people were below the age of 40. Of these it was assumed, anyone over the age of 40 clearly didn't need open space. Of these it was assumed that 150 would either not want to play sport or use a public space or would be unable to do so because of infirmity. A further 150 would use school facilities and the remaining 200 people in every thousand would need to be catered for. A further assumption that shapes our existing parks and playgrounds that we drive past or walk past or ride past every day is that, according to an Australian planning text from the 1950s, quote, a fully developed playground should provide for the segregation of the children according to age groups and except for the youngest, there should be sex segregation as well. So when you're passing a forlorn dusty park and wondering why it is there, the answer is rooted in assumptions made decades ago and continents away, a relic of bygone thinking. I recall early in my tenure as planning minister having the opportunity to interview Henry Wardlaw, an eminent Australian planner in the 60s and 70s. As he extolled the virtues of blueprint planning, I asked him to explain why arterial roads were so clogged with traffic. Surely they'd got their traffic projections wrong. No, he replied with confected umbrage. Our projections were right. It was our assumptions that were wrong. (laughs) The roads perform exactly as we projected on the basis of traffic modelling from the 1960s. The only problem was we assumed women would be raising children at home, not using the roads to commute to work. We planned perfectly, but we assumed about half of the traffic volume that actually transpired. Uh, So there you have it. Even the best laid plans, if based on outdated or misguided assumptions, can generate wicked problems. It's a call for us not just to plan, but to continuously re-evaluate the very foundations upon which we base our plans, to ensure that our cities and spaces remain vibrant, functional and reflective of our current societal values and realities. The second reason why we continue to create wicked problems is based on a fundamental disconnect between planning and economics. And this is where I might get myself in trouble. While 1973 saw a stark shift in the social science of urban planning from rigid rational models to adaptive empirical ones, the related discipline of economics was treading a starkly different path. Rather than embracing the experiential, economics became more rooted in theoretical abstraction. As rational models in planning were abandoned, in economics, they were embraced. There were malcontents. 1973, again, saw E.F. Schumacher publish Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Actually Mattered. But such contrarian views were overshadowed by the dominant ideology of economic rationalism, primarily championed by the influential Chicago school. Suddenly, economists and planners whose worldviews had coalesced around technocratic assumptions and rational models were no longer speaking the same language. Planners began asking people what they wanted, while economists continued to assume what people wanted. Technocratic planners turned to communitive and collaborative practice, whilst technocratic economists defended their rational theoretical models more vociferously than ever. This schism was never more evident than in the arena of urban infrastructure projects. Economists, armed with theoretical models from the likes of Merleys, Hicks and Caldor, introduced project evaluation frameworks laden with intricate assumptions. Formal cost-benefit analysis became the gold standard, mandated by governments across the US, UK, Australia and beyond. But herein lay the friction. The evolving people-centric approach of planners often clashed with the theoretical, assumption-laden methodology of economists. At the same time as cost-benefit analysis was emerging as an objective quantifiable economic tool to inform policy decisions by economists, planning laws were mandating empirical processes like public participation and social impact assessment. A clash of culture was inevitable, something I experienced firsthand. Executive government makes decisions through the central committees of cabinet. Uh, the most powerful of which is the Expenditure Review Committee, or ERC. The ERC makes investment decisions about la- major urban infrastructure proposals, most of which are large transport, uh, large-scale transport projects. Each project is supported by a detailed cost-benefit analysis, underpinned by a comparison of alternatives, and informed by a complex series of assumptions, including the wa- rate at which future costs and benefits of the project should be discounted, Uh, Impacts on consumer choice, such as shifts in preferred transport mode or impacts on travel demand, and wider economic benefits, such as development opportunities and land value uplift generated by investment in the project. Once this confidential, rational economic assessment is used to determine the viability of a project, it undergoes a public and participatory planning assessment of whether it should proceed. Here's the paradox. Rational economic assumptions have already been used to determine the costs and benefits of the project. Providing empirical opportunities for the public to actually ask rather than assume their choices and willingness to accept urban change will almost always alter the relative costs and benefits of the project, with costs almost always rising and benefits almost always found to be overstated. Antipathy and frustration are inevitable with an almost visceral outrage that planners, let alone the community, would dare to challenge assumptions in rational economic models. I learned this reality when I stepped in as planning minister to save some heritage homes earmarked for demolition as part of the WestConnex project, since their removal was not necessary to enable construction of the tunnels. However, unbeknown to me at the time, their replacement by residential towers had been assumed in the cost-benefit analysis as a means to recover project costs. On another occasion, I was asked to undertake urban renewal rezonings around planned metro stations, which involved granting very generous development rights to the metro entity. An uplift was entirely justified on the basis of increased infrastructure capacity and analysis of community feedback and benefits. I was initially surprised then when the proponent seemed disappointed with the significant increase in development potential uh, provided by the rezoning. Yet I later discovered the rights granted were nowhere near the heroic scale of redevelopment assumed in the cost-benefit analysis that informed the investment decision for the project in the first place. History teaches that more often than not, Treasury officials win such battles between the rational and the empirical, with the assumed generally prevailing over the asked. Cowed, planners sought refuge in rational and quantifiable models of their own like biodiversity offset calculators, building sustainability calculators, and standardised accessible development codes. The allure of these tools lay in their promise of objectivity and clarity. However, as with any model, they're only as accurate as the assumptions that feed into them. Put garbage in, and garbage comes out. Feed in unjust or biased assumptions, and the models will generate unjust or biased outcomes. Ironically, Using rational scientific models like codes and calculators has not ingratiated planners with economists. Instead, the discrepancies and results from these assumption-based tools have deepened economists' reservations about the efficacy of the planning profession altogether. In conclusion, we can only help our cities to escape the consequences of future wicked problems if they're not caused in the first place. To do so, we must constantly challenge and criticise the assumptions that underpin the models we use to help guide the decisions we take. The dawn of artificial intelligence magnifies this imperative. As we delegate more decision-making to machines, the foundation upon which these machines operate, their guiding assumptions, become paramount. Diversity is our safeguard against the pitfalls of wicked assumptions. Varied perspectives ensure that we don't fall into the trap of echo chambers, reinforcing our preconceived notions, which all of us have. To avoid wicked assumptions, we need humility, to recognise that all of our assumptions are based on fallibility and frailty, and that making assumptions or relying on existing assumptions does not absolve us of the duty to exercise discretion where an assumption left unchallenged will generate a wicked consequence. To this end, assumptions must not be allowed to atrophy into accepted wisdom. Urban myths are not just rooted in the folklore of cities. There are real urban myths, too. Those assumptions, although false, which inform decisions, which devalue the experience of urban life for generations. Maybe unchallenged assumptions drive faster decisions, but not necessarily better ones. As Dennis Winston put it, our ways of government are being compared to more rigorous ways of getting things done. Other countries are undoubtedly getting things done more quickly. But we still think our ways are best because we retain a greater degree of social, economic and political freedom. But the greater the freedom, the greater the responsibility. We reap what we sow. To prevent more wicked problems from emerging, we must weed out the wicked assumptions upon which these problems germinate. It's our shared responsibility to identify the wicked assumptions that distort equity and justice in our city, and call them out.
1: Wow, that was a very, very bracing uh, lecture. I actually didn't want it to end, to be perfectly honest with you, and there is so much there for us to talk about. I started to actually write down some of the slaying that you were doing there, Rob. You started off slaying white middle-class men, then pocket parks, the backyard, I think, got a slang, economics, CVA. I particularly loved the way that you explained pitting together, you know economic rationalism with public participation in planning and why it's not working I mean that's going to give us so much to to chew about and then I think you ended up um, with the challenge around the speed of decision making Um, I'm going to give you a free pass for now we're going to call up our panel of insiders and we're going to get them to talk through some assumptions that they want to put on the table and they want to challenge, that um, I will get you to come up and, and sit with us, Rob, because we've got some questions for you too um, at the end of that discussion. So can I call up uh, the panel? And I'm actually going to ask you, uh, Dylan, the first question, if I may. And, and really, um, Rob has given us a great segue into this question. Um, Because I want to ask you how we are or how we should be responding to Aboriginal culture and heritage in designing and planning for our built environment.
5: Um, Look, I've been obviously living this space for a very long time and uh, within my career um, for a number of years, um, you know, I think what I can share with you... um, is that we need to be better guided by Aboriginal community um, rather than taking the standard approach of, you know, the consultation or the engagement process, which is very transactional. Uh, Relationship building and collaboration is a real key to that. And the way that we speak about that is also really important. And I've actually done quite a bit of thinking and talking about uh, the use of language how important that is in terms of the way we think about things. So to be guided truly by Aboriginal people means you you need to be in a relationship equally, hopefully, um, and at the highest um, places of decision-making to do with the built environment. Uh, The other thing that's really critical within the community is uh, Indigenous um, Indigenous cultural intellectual property. Uh, Some of you may have heard of it, ICIP. It's within international law that we protect those property rights. But we tend to get very excited about Aboriginal culture uh, and Aboriginal people. There is a real desire to uh, work with Aboriginal people and to learn more. But the challenge is then overstepping that mark of ICIP and, and, and this sort of human-centered approach that we have that hopefully we can talk a little bit about um, where we want to claim the space as opposed to share the space. Um, and it's a bit like what Rob's talking about, the, the perils of um, having cultural mindsets and assumptions uh, about things particularly learned through you know, and expertise that we develop. So the experts actually are, are the worst, I suppose, at having cultural mindsets because through their experience and their success, you know, they believe that the way that they do things is the best way to do things as opposed to kind of working with others. The other thing that's um, happening within uh, the community is a, a lack of uh, spatial design expertise. And so there's this great wave of... I suppose, work that's happening and this intention to work with the Aboriginal community, but there's a bit of a catch-up phase within the community that's required to develop their, their spatial design expertise and to actually understand how their knowledge is being interpreted within the built environment. And the other side of that is government and industry developing their cultural awareness or cultural competency to actually understand, you know... What, what does permission mean? What does the author- cultural authority mean to then use that knowledge within uh, the design of the built environment? Uh, and then finally, you know, with this very limited and valuable resource within the community, this knowledge, um, I think we need to better prioritise with them in agreement with Aboriginal community the work that's most critical. Um, so, you know... Actually, share with the community the really key projects happening within a region that they have responsibility to care for, and actually target the projects um, that that are most have most critical impact on the country that they have that responsibility for. Because what's happening is that there's being spread from pillar to post on every single school, every single high rise, every single kind of um, project that's happening, there's too much work for them to cover. So we need to prioritise the work that that is most critical for them and and for country. And then with that, um, this idea of returning community back to country so that they can um, continue their living cultural practices. So it's more than just a mural, it's more than just a cultural narrative interpreted within the built environment. It's actually returning community to country, to continue that connection with country and to actually activate country. So these might be concepts that are difficult for many of you to understand, and that's part of the journey that um, hopefully um, myself and others are helping to share with you, this idea of connecting with country, designing with country and caring for country.
1: It sounds very, very different actually to the way that we were taught to plan and the assumptions that we take into our professional planning roles in many in many ways. I want to take that further now and if I may ask you about one of the really difficult issues, I think, and we're going to talk about this again further in the festival, and it's how we recognise both colonial or settler and First Nations cultural uh, history in our planning, and whether we can, even if it's even possible, to have a a knowledge or a recognition of even a shared cultural history, um, and how that might even influence design outcomes.
5: I I think what pops into mind is um, Uncle Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, this idea Again, with the cultural mindset of actually not being able to see what 's actually in front of you, so you know that that the roads were built by Aboriginal people originally and they became formalized, such as Parramatta Road was an original track built by Aboriginal people. Many of the early post uh, contact gathering uh, parks rather are the original gathering grounds that were cleared and curated by aboriginal people so the deep time memory of country is actually, a lot of it is still present within our built environment. It's just, we have to see it. Uh, and the interesting thing is that there is actually correlations between that deep time purpose of country and what it is today. So, so many of the um, ceremonial grounds uh, are still ceremonial grounds, such as the MCG, which was originally a men's gathering ground Um, and it sounds a bit cheeky that there's this sort of association with a sporting event Um, but there there is this deep time connection between a ritual that was was originally conducted on those grounds and still is and same with um, uh, health facilities Often the very old health facilities are located close by um, healing grounds or uh, places where you could source medicines traditionally. Same with women's places. The female factory that's out at Parramatta has a very um, important uh, women's birthing site. So this association between women gathering for women's business, um, there was, albeit sort of not such a great purpose that unfolded, but women sort of still connected to that place. And it goes on and on. Um, I think the idea of a shared uh, history within our built environment, the opportunity is there. We often see one separate from the other. There's this idea that we celebrate very well our colonial history, less so our Aboriginal history, but we think of them as separate and they are distinct, but post-contact is a shared history, one affecting the other. And an example of it is um, there, there was a precinct that was planned in Western Sydney um, that had a scar tree or a series of scar trees actually close by a creek. And um, the arborist, the white arborist who um, did the study on the scar tree actually only identified one of four and the other three were associated with the tree that he, he had recognised as a scar tree but didn't understand that the other trees were practice trees. So it was actually an education place. So novice cutters were practising on trees to learn the skill of an expert cutter. So it's this incredible um, uh, these incredible artefacts that are still within our landscape that we don't fully understand Um, how we can actually incorporate those within the development of our our cities and our towns. And more than that, the association with those trees and the creek. um, So the original structured plan had them in a pocket park, so it was separate from the creek. Um, But because it was very close to the creek, we managed to, without much sacrifice to the overall planning, get that connection re-established. Uh, and then finally, on that that point, is always, I, I say, to think of a tree as a living thing, not just an umbrella to provide us with shade. Um, and I say that in, in its deepest sense, the respect of the living um, entity of the tree and the life that it supports is... Um, you know, not to think of it as, as an umbrella. And it's a great, you know, we see this as a good thing. We need to shade, provide shade um, as, as the, the, the globe is warming. But we often think of the tree as something, as a commodity, as an umbrella. And the tree needs relationship with other trees. And so, again, many of you in the room may know that trees actually communicate with one another and they support one another through, through the root system. And, and the trees can identify its family of trees. I mean, it's quite remarkable. So the science tells us this, but culturally, certainly, within an Aboriginal community, we knew that this was what existed. So there are those spatial dimensions, I think, between sharing that cultural knowledge with the knowledge that we have in mainstream society. And I think we can get these, often they're quite subtle shifts, but they can be quite, have dramatic outcomes.
1: Wow, I mean that's so profound. And when we listen to you talk, even just about the deep histories around the places that I think it's fair to say, well, certainly I probably would have looked at those places actually seeing none of that. So my own assumptions, you know, as a as a settler white planner, that you know the place had a very shallow history, you know, needs to be um, needs to be challenged and. And, and people like me need to be deeply educated. And so on that, on, on that subject of, of education and actually challenging our assumptions and moving to a better process, can you talk about what a real um, country-centred planning process might look like?
5: Mm. I mean, one of my favourite examples is that, like, when I was taught here at University of Sydney with an architecture The site analysis is probably the first thing that you learn. Um, You know, it's often based on maps and surveys, and it's quite a static process actually, even though you might visit the site, it's actually using your eye. And the word site, S-I-T-E, is actually linked to sight, seeing, and sitting. So it only uses really at its at its core the one sense of seeing. So, what what I then encourage people uh, to do with the site analysis, if you take the site as I've just described it, the analysis is actually unpacking a complex problem into smaller bits. And I've we, we were taught this too to delaminate the complex problem into the layers. And I think the problem. That occurs there it's it's it sometimes doesn 't get kind of relaminated in the way that that it once was as a whole thing and that 's not difficult from an aboriginal worldview to see the complex problem as a whole um, so those two things the site and the analysis put together i think is very limiting whereas walking country um, some of you may have heard of that term. Walking is fundamentally how humans learn. So within the brain, um, the back of the brain and the vestibular system work together to triangulate spatial information that we learn from and the brain sends that content to the front of the brain where problem-solving occurs and, we're, and kick, it then fires up memory retention. So Aboriginal people have known this for time immemorial. So the walking country and the singing country and the great journeys that we still undertake is this process of teaching younger people, you know, about their country and the relationships with country, but also reinforces the knowledge, this vast knowledge that's held uh, within the singular brain, but also within the collective community. So walking country, you know, uh, connects with all of the senses, listening, smelling, touching, um, sort of almost sixth sensing, uh, as well as the seeing, and this idea that fundamentally humans learn learn by, by walking.
1: That's something for us to take on board, um, planning students um of tomorrow your education is going to start to look different i'm going to tear myself away from this line of conversation um but we will be bringing dylan back into the um, conversation in a moment i'm going to shift over to you davina and no one is safe in tonight's uh, conversation. Well, we're all safe, <laughs> but none of our assumptions are safe and none of our sort of comfortable practices are safe. And so I'm going to uh, ask you, as the representative of the of the um, built environment industry, how that industry needs to change to bring about more sustainable places and practices.
6: Well, I think we've heard here tonight about wicked assumptions and, and let's look at a couple of them. In You know, we've got climate change, we've got, you know, biodiversity crisis, we've got an affordability crisis. That's quite a trifecta of wicked assumptions. So I'm pretty willing to say almost everything's up for grabs. And I think one of the reasons we have to acknowledge this at the moment is, you know, we often go through, to Rob's point, really long processes, and it's got every buzzword that you could possibly think of, sustainable, cultural, this, that. And then somehow or other the outcome doesn't meet the heartbeat of the community. And so I think we've got to start redesigning things to meet and match what the heartbeat of that community wants. And what what, what do they want? They want, you know, things that are set up with... that are livable. They would like things that are healthier for themselves, their family, the planet. And, you know, to Dylan's point, we've actually got quite a lot of science that underpins these things. You know, if we're talking about a net-zero future, we're talking about highly efficient buildings powered by renewables that are fossil fuel free, none of this is a revelation. We've actually got the technology to do it. And, you know, we have to shift from a paradigm where we do one or two of these and we give them gorgeous awards to doing them everywhere all the time. Mm. You know, Mm. otherwise, you know, my my daughter was sent home from school today in the heat and sort of said to me, why is it this hot in spring? Why is it this hot in the first week of spring? I think we fundamentally have to look at a, a very new paradigm And we need to basically, everything's got to be up for grabs. And we've got to bring the community's heartbeat right to the centre of this. And then we've got to take all the science that we know to be true and look at pathways to implement it at scale.
1: Wow, that's actually quite a shocking thing that a a classroom was sent home in Mm. September
6: because of high heat. But how is this you know how are we at this day and you know I think it's one of those things I mean when we used to talk about climate change you know, early in my career a couple of decades ago we used to talk about it as though it was a long way away and far far away and then I think for many of us you know the moment my son during the bushfires came up to me and was like so I can't breathe and you're sending me there what are you going to do about that so, all of a sudden, the wicked problems that seemed a long way away and someone else's problem in a land far, far, they're, they're right here, right now. They're very immediate and they're very personal. And so, I think that changes quite a lot of the assumptions. And it's really important for us to reach this moment whilst, you know, the climate assumptions in particular were conservative, we're further along, you know, we're going to hit one and a half degrees later this year despite all international agreements. So, like, now's the time to bring the battle cry to actually take all the things we know we should do and bring them at scale and to, you know, to hell with talkback radio. You know, we can't, we can, you know, we, we can't run years of public conversation run by the best context and we have one shock jock who doesn't like it and all of a sudden we're willing to give up the festival of ideas, you know, I think we have to be braver than that because the assumptions of what was at stake have changed.
1: I mean, on that, when I was at planning school, I actually didn't learn about ESD, for instance. Mm. Um, You know, that's how how much re-education we actually have to do across the profession. But one of the assumptions that I don't think I'm ready to let go of yet is actually that we bring about good change, better change through regulation. And as someone from industry, I want to ask you about that, Davina, because you know certainly that is one of the, the, the contests that we will often fight, is over uh, regulation and particularly... I mean, look, can we just for a moment recognise the, the grey roof scandal that was a couple of years ago when, mm. when, you know, our former Minister for Planning and every other, you know, urban portfolio that, um, that you can imagine tried to regulate against grey roofs and it didn't go very far. But to the broader point, Davina, what would you say? You know, is it a matter that we can get more sustainable places and practices through regulation?
6: So, so this, this question of what does industry do, what does government do? Like, I think we have to look at the role of some of leading industry. There's a real opportunity to use voluntary practice and lift industry up and make space for sensible regulation underneath it. If someone hasn't done it, if someone hasn't delivered it at scale, um, you know, I was discussing the trajectories uh, for buildings, what the built environment could look like, and I was actually able to say to the team who are writing these trajectories for Australia, would you like to come to a building that we did a couple of years ago that has all of these principles in it? and embedded. So there's this real role for lifting up and then making that space. And it's gotta be a partnership because regulation's a blunt instrument. It's really nice if you've tried and done it in a community or with our leading councils and done a number of these before we apply them to the whole nation. Because we've heard earlier tonight, assumptions are often wrong. So it's really nice to have a a pilot project, have a go and a real opportunity of when we come together with, with the shared vision is that we actually have that opportunity to co-design together. I think we do have to acknowledge, though, there's certain parts of our market where it's fragmented, where communication is complex, and when in spaces like residential, we're decades behind the rest of the developed world, that there is going to be a need for regulation to lift minimum standards. When I sit with German politicians, they talk about the need to double-glaze pigsties When I sit on a social housing board and look at design briefs, sometimes for our most vulnerable, we're not always looking at that same standard of design and we really need to step back and ask ourselves about what equity looks like in that construct and does that match the heartbeat of the community that we want to talk about.
1: Thanks, Davina. Yeah, there's a real false false binary, I think, that we fall into in Australia, isn't it? That somehow we can't afford sustainable design.
6: But when, you know, we we previously assumed another false assumption, we assumed that 5% of people were uncomfortable in their houses, Um, you know, outside of the World Health Organisation temperature ranges. Over 50% of Australian homes are outside that range and with research linked on Friday, it can be up to 70% of homes when we focus on winter only. So there's, you know, our assumption that weather's pretty okay most of the year round, you wear a jumper for a couple of weeks in winter. Um, You know, we're a society where um, of all the elderly who were presented in a Victorian hospital for hypothermia with the elderly... 87% 87% of them were in their houses. You know, When we get it wrong in the built environment at scale, there's a risk that we create intergenerational poverty and intergenerational challenge and that's the accountability we hold when you hold the pen.
1: Well, we're going to try and lift the tone now because <laughs> we have <laughs> on our panel someone who has the most absolutely incredible job title. It's future communities of, of some kind it just sounds fantastic so as our person responsible for bringing about future communities Michelle Kramer can I ask you what mind shifts urban planners and designers need to make to bring about the kind of future communities
7: that we need thanks Nicole I'm hoping this is working I've been doing a lot of listening For me, mindset is entirely tied to zeitgeist. And we are at another moment in time, like the other moments in time, 1973. 73. 1950, something else. Um, And that's so important to actually stop for a minute and think about what that means for us at this moment in time. When I was studying my masters of architecture in urban design, the world hit this significant tipping point, and that was that we shift, it was 1999, and we shifted from being primarily an agrarian society globally to being an urban society globally. And that was huge for us um, in school, talking about that as a significant shift. Um, and now, uh, you know, we're on the verge 2050, we're expected to be 70% of people in cities and urban centres. So. That for me is not so much about the city shaping part of that, but what it means for the people that are in those cities and why we're actually putting these urban agglomerations together. It's for the people that will occupy them. Um, And that also then shifts to the human condition. So it's all about um, human rights, equitable housing, non-intergenerational poverty energy transition, water security, all those good things that are actually about the people side, not about the the planning or the economic side, necessarily. But those bits are, of course, really important. So, to answer the question, um, we are in this technological century, and we have at our fingertips these new ways of thinking and working. And... We need to work out how to use technology, how to use artificial intelligence, regenerative design, generative design, data and analytics to, do, to help us out with the complex story, get the assumptions right, of course, or accept that they're not facts and that they should evolve as they go, so that we can spend the time actually thinking about the human side of the story and how we use those tools to actually build these places that make sense for the, for the people
1: that are in them. It's, it's very exciting always when you hear an architect <laughs> and urban designer say, no, let's put down our pencils and talk about, about people. Look, I do have one last question for Michelle and then we're going to go to audience questions. <laughs> but this is something that really intrigues me and it's based on Michelle's, um, one of the many hats that Michelle um, wears in relation to the work. I'm aware that you do some work with, I, I believe it's UNICEF and, and young people. I want to know, and, you know, I'm also a mother of four um, and have thought a lot about how the city works and doesn't work, actually, you know, for my children. But what do you think we would do differently if we were actually focusing on children and young people and how they experience
7: and how they want to experience the city? Yeah, I am very privileged to work for uh, Strategic Advisor to UNICEF Australia on their Child-Friendly Cities Program. So I've got some stats. I'm going to, to use them. The first one totally aligns with what you just said, which is um, UNICEF Australia gave a report to the Senate in 2019, so sort of in the middle of pandemic, post a bushfire, but not the other bushfire and pre some floods. And they said that Australian children have a rising fear of the future, that they are living and breathing this situation, which is all climate related, and they are wondering what the adults around them are doing about it and how um, how they could potentially participate in that change, or or giving them a sense of um, potential that they can make a difference. And then before COP26 a couple of years ago, um, GHD did a a young professionals survey. And that's where I'm going to read. I have to put my glasses on for that. Um, So we asked our young professionals how confident they were that global emission reduction goals would be met within 10 years and rather shockingly 52% said that they were not confident and so there were some other stats that were equally difficult to hear which was 65% rated the speed of community adaption to climate change as too slow, 69% rated the speed of change to clean energy is too slow, said governments and businesses weren't doing enough to prioritise low-carbon energy, and it went on and on. But 42%, almost got to 50%, um, were confident as future leaders to directly contribute to emissions reduction goals. And I think that's the bit that's really powerful. So you've got almost 50% of our people standing up and saying, I actually want to participate in this, even though it's really hard and I don't think we're there. I want to have a a role to play in this. And so for me, working with young people and the the UNICEF crew, it's around how do we give a voice to those people um, and accept that it isn't our generation or our culture or our gender that is actually the right way forward, but we can um, introduce these people also into the program in some way. So there are lots of... um, local councils across Sydney that now have youth councils as part of that and part of their, pro- their planning program. They use those councils. I think that's fantastic. There's some interesting change- changes going on in planning law around um, or planning guidance, I should say, that is looking at what kids in apartments means. What does it mean to live in an apartment as a family versus apartments being built for... Um, young professionals and how that actually changes the way that you design them. So there's hope, but there's that, the request of us is how do we actually bring those people into the conversation in a genuine and meaningful way? Because they also know how to use the technology and that's a really handy thing for us to also consider in this process.
1: Yeah, from um, from assumptions about what gender segregated playgrounds to kids in apartments, I think we haven't actually done a great job of of challenging our assumptions about how how um, children use the city and and homes. We're going to shift to audience questions now. Um, Rob, I'm going to ask you this question. It was a late question. It came in. It's without notice. Um, and it's quick, right. but I think it's hard. Right. What was the most wicked problem you faced um, oh, oh, oh. during your um, time?
4: Oh, um, I wasn't really a wicked problem, I was a wicked applicant. Um, uh, <laughs> it was probably the bloody star casino. Um, <laughs> that, was, um, that was the really hard one for me. Um, I'll get sued down. Do you go up? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, no it, was, it was more that um, I, I think this city um, particularly... It, you know, it's interesting. Maybe this is naive on my part. But I thought there, there are two things you can do to plan. You can either say to private applicants, you know what, government will be completely passive, you come forward with your ideas, and uh, if it's a good idea, we'll say yes. Uh, and that's what they do in some parts of the United States, for example. Um, or you can have a system where you strategically plan as a community, you talk as a community, you ask as a community, different groups in the community, different ages, and get a picture of, of what your aspirations are, what infrastructures you need to support those aspirations, and then you apportion development rights according to that shared agreement. That's what we try to do. But the problem is we've got this counterculture, that that is often where applicants say, OK, That's where we start the negotiating. And the problem is, no, 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 we've already apportioned all the rights. If you want to take more, that means someone else gets less. Um, And then they'll often say, well, no, give them more as well, and then the whole place is a mess. Um, So so that is... We've got a cultural challenge uh, in... uh, And it's it's quite unique. You go to European cities or Asian cities, and they they just go, no, no, we've we've done the plan. Uh, If we say it's going to be five storeys, if we say it's going to be 20 storeys, it's going to be five storeys, it's going to be 20 storeys. There's no argument about that. Uh, That's just what the rights that have been determined based on the capacities and the constraints of a particular area. Uh, We don't do it that way. Um, And uh, yeah, so that was my answer. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that is a pretty good answer, actually. Um, All right, no more anonymous questions, sadly. Um, This one is from Shannon, uh, Sharon, sorry, Sharon Veal, and really, I think we're going to have to throw it to you, Dylan. But you can give us a a fast answer because it's a it's a curly one. Uh, One of the wicked assumptions in planning is its silence on dispossession and its complicity with settler colonialism and capitalism. Um, And I think Rob has just described that very well. Right then. Um, so, how can we reframe and decolonise planning theory and
5: practice? <laughs> oh my god. Uh, de- decolonising has been sort of, you know, around the tracks for a long time. And um, I think, you know, in our prep, I mentioned, oh my god, decolonising. I'm so sick of hearing that word. Um, I understand what what it's meant to be, I don't know. I I, I think it's more about actions than it is about the sort of labels. You know, there's a thing called the cognitive triangle that um, we talk about in the framework we've just launched, Connecting with Country, and it's a way of changing uh, your behaviour through the way of changing your thinking. And behavioural scientists use... uh, ..therapists use this to help people who might be suffering from trauma, like to change the thinking will actually change your behaviour or you might have a phobia to something, so you change the thinking. So that's the principle of it. Um, And I think that's somewhat related to our 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 discussion here, is that the key then is how do you change the thinking. So within the space that I'm working, it is around the cultural awareness, it's around the cultural immersion, it's actually touching on the heartstrings as well because part of that triangle is feeling, and I think that's the part that often gets left out. Um, particularly through uh, Western sciences, you can't you can't feel; it's it's all kind of, you know, thinking stuff. And I just don't think we can change that thinking unless we tap into that feeling side. So, hopefully, um, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, that that will happen if we can touch the heart strings a bit more and then the thinking might change and we'll get a result. Am I being too cryptic? No,
1: no. (laughs) No, that was a fantastic um, answer, actually. And so thank you so much, uh, Sharon, for the the question. And, yeah, let's hope there's Mm. a a yes. Um, Question for Davina from Patrick Harris. How can the current New South Wales planning system be improved to address climate change with particular emphasis on health and social equity?
6: Thank you. I'll give a fun answer and then I'll um, give something more pragmatic in the middle. So the fun answer starts with the design and places set uh, that Rob and I spent quite a bit of time and on. Dylan. Yeah, and yeah. Dylan. In the background, we yeah. It was, was a bit of a journey. H- however, I mean, it's really easy to point to the, you know, some beautiful principles that were put in place of something We didn't quite get over the line, but we have to step back and acknowledge that A lot of those principles, the sustainable building set, actually did get over the line, get in 1 October. First embodied carbon measurement in Australia for small buildings, big buildings, globally significant work. First net zero frameworks that we're expecting to see taken up nationally. You know, electrification at scale in big buildings. Mm. It hasn't been as publicised. So I think one of the things... And we talk about grey roof scandal actually the new um, the new code that's embedded in basics doesn't actually let you have dark roofs either so you know um, you know I think we should pause and give a small amount of applause for the bravery of some of the audience (laughs) and you know some of my fellow panellists because you know let's be honest it was a bloodbath of a process but this is what happens in a contest of ideas where we, you know, you said it was this way, I say it's this way, and we smash it together and find a pathway in the middle. And this is going to be the disorderly decade, you know? Um, when was yeah, the best go, time to, best to do things hard. in this space? Hashtag. 30 years ago. <laughs> When's the next best time? Yeah. Right now. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we lost 30 years and we're trying to do it all at once, a little bit like my son and my, his term project when I get home. <laughs> Oh but, you know, that's unfortunately where we are in policy. You know, all these wicked ideas that were raised 50 years ago, we didn't quite address them then and we didn't quite catch them 30 years ago. So it's the decade of
1: now. OK. Um, these, these last two questions are going to have to be really quick because Davina's got to get home and help her son <laughs> with an assignment. What was it? Hashtag, <laughs> <disorganized>. <laughs> Hashtag
5: Disorderly decade. Disorderly decade, decade. that's right.
1: Um, Michelle, question from... Dina Ridnor can you discuss the role of place-based design and discuss very quickly the role of place-based design, it's a very good segue from the last um, discussion actually, to adapt or to implement alternatives to, gen- to general generic historic planning assumptions?
7: How do I do that quickly? And also, um, thanks Dina, wherever you are, you were with me in class when we went from agrarian to urban. So oh. kind of nice to get um, a question from you. Place-based is, of course, everything for, um, for an architect and an urban designer. And um, how do we get there is the key thing. I actually think it harks back to what you were talking about, Rob, of how we... The place itself is not the thing. It's actually the entire ecosystem of how you make mm-hmm. that place work mm-hmm. and how you bring together the, all the stakeholders that, that come together to make it successful. Because we can build things, and they will be empty, Um, unless we actually layer up the correct curation of that. And that doesn't mean just the look of Mm -hmm. the place and the types of trees that we have. It also means the economic activity that is part of that and makes it sustainable and makes the place sticky and makes people want to come and linger in that location. So I think the answer to place-based is actually to go beyond place and actually collect all those different pieces that make up the real puzzle um, to make sure that we get these places as sticky and attractive that people want to be in.
1: So much to talk about there. Um, uh, Second last question. This is from John Engler, um, and it's for you, Rob. Uh. Do we have too many people living in too few cities?
4: Oh, thanks, John. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER Well, yes, but there's nothing we can do about it um, (laughs) because more and more people are going to want to come into the bigger cities. That's just the reality. So we're going to have to figure out how to make it all work. And the beauty is that is, in one sense, the wonderful challenge of design. Um, You give a designer no problem and they come up with really boring solutions. You give them something impossible to deal with and that's where you get really creative, inventive, wonderful outcomes. So we're going to end up with mega cities because everyone wants to live next to each other. Um, and uh, we're, you know, ideally, yes, it might be... Well, in one sense, from a sustainability perspective, it might be better to have all the, the systems uh, concentrated rather than spread out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, whether it's a good thing or not, it's going to
1: happen. So. All right, okay, so this is the last question. It's for all of you, so it's going to be really fast because we're, um, we're at time. The question was submitted by Donald Proctor and is a very good one. Um, I'm going to start actually with Davina and we'll run through to Dylan. What will be the next greatest false assumption or myth?
6: I'm going to go with an oldie but a goodie. Uh, cost not value. Oh,
4: I'm I'm going to get myself in trouble again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And
6: And everyone's loving it. No, no, no. they are (laughs) going to doubt my my, um,
4: my membership. uh, My membership of the Liberal Party might now get rejected. But I think it might be private property. Um, I I think it might be conceptions of um, this idea, this notion that we have if there's... We've separated a bit of land and it's on a piece of paper somewhere that's got a... You know, a lot and deposited plan number and somehow that means that in 65,712 years it'll still be the same lot and DP number. It's just a fiction, it's an assumption. It's been productive up until this point. I think it's starting to be less productive than it used to be and I think those notions of how we assume that real property is owned, uh, I think they're going to come under increasing under in question.
1: Well, that's definitely something to talk about. Um, Michelle?
7: I think we need to think about things that we think are permanent but really are not permanent at all. And the best example I can give of that is, um, and stealing a little bit from Bruce Mao, the futurist, we just accept that waste is a thing that we deal with. Imagine if we just didn't accept that waste existed and how would we change the way that we approached how we were designing and building our cities. Transformational. Great. Thank you. And Dylan?
5: I might uh, come full circle back to Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark EMU. Uh, the assumption there is that we can't see what's in front of us. I think we can. Well, that is a really <laughs> oh, wonderful <laughs> note
1: to, to end on. But, look, can I thank our amazing keynote speaker, um, Dr Rob Stokes. That was an extraordinary address. And our absolutely fantastic um, panel. I mean, we've been absolutely privileged tonight. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.